And the other one is brown, and the other one is green. So they are different colors. Who's cranky? Frog. Frog. <laughs> <laughs> Who's brave? She's pointing okay. a frog, you say? Frog. <laughs> this is Rosemary, with her parents, Elise and Kent Wascom, reading one of her favorite stories. It's called The Corner, from the Frog and Toad series, by Arnold Lobel. Frog and Toad were caught in the rain. They ran to Frog's house. I am all wet, said Toad. The day is spoiled. Have some tea and cake, said Frog. The rain will stop. If you stand near the stove, your clothes will soon be dry. I will tell you a story while we are waiting, said Frog. Oh, good, said Toad. Frog begins to tell a story from a time when he was just a pollywog. One cold day, Frog's father told him that, though it may not seem it, spring was just around the corner. I wanted spring to come. I went out to find that corner. I walked down a path in the woods until I came to a corner. I went around the corner to see if spring was on the other side. And was it? asked Toad. No, said Frog. There was only a pine tree, three pebbles, and some dry grass. I walked in the meadow. Soon I came to another corner. I went around the corner to see if spring was there. Did you find it? asked Toad. No, said Frog. Rosemary is just three years old. Her parents have been reading the books to her since she was about 18 months. She's grown up with Frog and Toad. Are they a little gentle? Uh-huh. In the story, Frog continues to look for spring until he finally gets tired and goes home, where he finds another corner, the corner of his house. Did you go around it? asked Toad. I went around that corner, too, said Frog. What did you see? asked Toad. I saw the sun coming out, said Frog. I saw birds sitting and singing in a tree. I saw my mother and father working in their garden. I saw flowers in the garden. You found it, cried Toad. Yes, said Frog. I was very happy. I had found the corner that spring was just around. Spring, I love spring and summer. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. On this episode, we're going to talk about Frog and Toad by Arnold Lobel. The first book was published in 1970, and this year marks its 50th anniversary. Yet the books, they're as fresh and relevant as ever, and gaining new readers like Rosemary. The series of picture books is named after its two main characters, Frog and Toad, and their deep special friendship. 
Arnold wrote and illustrated the books. We'll hear from Arnold's daughter, Adrienne Lobel, about what her father was like. He was very funny. He could tell a great yarn and he was very articulate and uh, he loved the theater. We'll also hear from a couple of illustrators who admire Frog and Toad. Pete Oswald remembers reading Arnold's books as a kid. Do you know the difference between a frog and a toad? Oh my God, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know. Sergio Ruzier discovered him as an adult. I love his work and I, yeah, I wish I could, I could have met him, but I came to New York too late. <laughs> okay, so Arnold LaBelle wrote and illustrated Frog and Toad, but who was he? Arnold was born in 1933 and raised by his grandparents in Schenectady, New York, in what he's called in interviews a, quote, stoic household. He started telling stories when he was about seven or eight years old. This is his daughter, Adrian. He would tell stories to his classmates. If a teacher ran out of activities for the class, she'd call Arnold up and ask him to entertain the other students. And they loved him for doing that. He was very popular. As he got older, he changed course. For college, he went to the Pratt Institute in New York City, and he studied art. It was there that he also met his future wife, Anita Lobel. His daughter, Adrian, she was born while he was still in school. My parents were very, very young when I was born. My father was 22 and my mother was 21, and they weren't expecting me. I was a surprise. Adrian says Arnold was a loving father. He was a lot of fun. He was a really, we called him Papa for one thing. So I always think of him as Papa. He read us his stories and he drew us pictures. And he was one of the first fathers who really took care of small children. This was the late 50s, early 60s. And he would take my brother and I to the sandbox and all the other mothers who were there thought, you know, what's wrong with this guy? Because he was taking on, you know, a mother's responsibility. He worked in advertising, but he hated it. For a time, he worked at a Jewish children's magazine. But what he wanted to do was illustrate kids' books. So he put together a portfolio of his drawings and started to visit publishers. First, he visited the smaller publishing houses, but they weren't interested. Then he went to HarperCollins. Ursula Nordstrom, who is the head of the department, believed that anybody who wanted to be seen by somebody in the children's book department should be seen. And everybody who came up with or without an appointment on the elevator got to see me. This is Susan Hirschman. She worked for 50 years as a children's book editor. She started Green Willow Books and was editor-in-chief of the children's department at Macmillan. But that all came later. When Arnold rode that elevator up to HarperCollins, she was still there. We had just started the Science I Can Read books, 1956, I guess. I Can Read books are for beginning readers. And we needed an artist to draw a salmon, because the book was about how a salmon goes upstream and lays eggs, etc. And Arnold came in with a portfolio, and he had done no hardcover children's books, but he had 
done a kit with instructions how to build, I think it was a grasshopper. And I figured anybody who could draw a grasshopper could draw a salmon. And he obviously was a good artist. And so we gave him the manuscript of Red Tag Comes Back. He, of course, did it beautifully. Susan says editors at HarperCollins realized Arnold could do anything. So they threw all sorts of illustration projects at him. And after a year went by, suddenly came in one day with a dummy of uh, a zoo for Mr. Muster. And I had no idea that he could write. And of course, he could write. He was a wonderful, wonderful writer. What we were always looking for was a fresh viewpoint and talent. And it was pouring out of Arnold. And I think that the only surprising thing to me was that it had never occurred to me or to anybody else, anybody else meaning Ursula, to say, do do you want to write? Or can you write? Or will you write? We were so busy keeping him busy illustrating that I think it just never came. Well, it didn't take all that long. It was a year. Then he wrote the first book, and then he wrote the second book, and and then he just went on. And and he was so immensely gifted in both writing and illustrating that it was all very happy. If you can't already tell, Susan loved working with Arnold. He was a lovable person, she says. Very, very friendly, very easy, very funny. And he loved working. He was, I think, happiest when he was sitting either writing or illustrating. He loved it, and he did it so beautifully. His dummies were perfect. The sketches were, I don't want to say tight because that sounds funny, but he'd thought the whole thing through. And when he presented us with a new idea, it was all there to see. It wasn't just roughly sketched out and I might get do this when I get ready to do it. He, he knew where he was going. Is there a certain feeling that you get when you read one of his books? Yes, I think you smile and you think, yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. They're so true to human experience. He doesn't stretch. He doesn't make contrivances. Everything everything fits together, everything. And I, I think that's what makes them so good. And they're so funny and they're so sweet and they're so loving and they're so undated. Meanwhile, family life went on, too. Adrian says they moved from their tiny apartment into a larger place in the same Brooklyn neighborhood. And then from there, we moved to a very nice duplex apartment. And then finally, they bought a townhouse across the street when I was much older. Arnold liked domesticity. He did all the vacuuming. He liked to clean. My mother was a very messy cook, and he would clean up after she cooked. She was a good cook. But she used every pot in the place, and uh, he would clean up afterwards, and he would sing while he washed the dishes. Mostly, he sang show tunes. I know he liked Barbara Streisand a lot, so he sang things like, nobody's going to rain on my parade, and, and stuff like that, at the top of his voice. Arnold liked to do his illustration work in the mornings. In the afternoons, he'd move to his special chair, where he wrote. His chair was a chair in the living room, 
and it was an upholstered chair. And I remember he would always, he would write, but he would always read everything out loud. So you'd hear him in the living room reading his stories out loud because he knew that's how they would be experienced. So that was always a wonderful thing to hear him reading out loud while he created the stories. Arnold was insecure about his writing. He insisted that illustration came much more naturally to him. And he always said that writing was the spinach and illustrating was the dessert. So I think that, you know, he wrote for himself to draw pictures. Anita, Adrian's mother, who was also an illustrator, liked to travel. But Arnold really missed his work when he was away. He preferred to stay home. The compromise was summers in Vermont. And they would take their drawing tables and all their art supplies and stuff up to this house for three months at a time. When Adrienne was a teenager, she brought a toad home to the place in Vermont. He said, what a nice frog you have there. And I said, it's not a frog, it's a toad. So what's the difference between frogs and toads? Well... Toads are smaller, and they're brown and warty, and they live under rocks, and they don't swim very well, and they're kind of slow and sluggish, and they're very cute, and they're easier to keep as pets because you keep them in earth, not in water. You know, keeping a frog is more difficult because you have to keep a watery environment. Frogs are bigger, and they're green, and they're slimy. And they're fast. They're much harder to catch. And they live in the water, whereas toads live on land. That's the main differences between them. About a year later, in 1970, Arnold published the very first Frog and Toad book. It was called Frog and Toad Are Friends. It has five stories about a frog and a toad. They wear blazers and somewhat flared, fashionable pants... They actually kind of look like professors from the 1970s. The stories tend to follow them on these cozy adventures. This series has become Arnold's most popular. And though she can't be sure, Adrienne thinks it all started with her bringing home that toad. I always think that there's got to be a link between my teaching him about frogs and toads and first stories about frog and toad. Just like frogs and toads in the wild are different, the characters, frog and toad, have distinct personalities, too. Well, it's kind of similar. Toad is sort of squat and stuffy and likes to stay at home and, you know, live under a rock, so to speak. And frog is more adventurous and more athletic and, you know, was always the one promoting adventures, whereas Toad would rather stay home and eat some soup. Arnold has said that all of the Frog and Toad stories are actually based on events from his own life. Take, for example, the story Cookies. In it, Toad bakes cookies. Let's listen from the audiobook. It's read by Arnold. Toad bakes some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. He ate one. And they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. 
Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad eat many, many cookies. We should stop, they think. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. But willpower is hard to come by. What if they put the cookies away in a box? But they can always take them out of the box, they reason. Well, what if they put some string around the box? But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true said Frog. Frog got a ladder. He put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true said Frog. Frog decides that the only way they won't eat the cookies is if they get rid of them. Frog takes the cookies outside and scatters them for the birds to eat. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I am going home now to bake a cake. Those cookies were based on a very specific cookie. When we were in Vermont, we would eat Fryhofer's chocolate chip cookies that were very good. And so the cookie story came from, from our devotion to Fryhofer's chocolate chip cookies. Adrian says that you couldn't get those cookies in New York City, only in Vermont, where they vacationed. They were salty and sweet at the same time and chewy and crunchy at the same time. They were just perfect cookies. The cookies are a simple, even silly premise. But the story is about willpower. It can be difficult to harness and, in the end, may not even feel worth it. All of the frog and toad stories tackle adult themes like this and adult feelings. I think he wrote just to to write stories. You know, he always liked O. Henry and Sake and people who wrote short stories for adults. He would introduce me to those writers. So I think when he wrote, he was really writing in a very short story form for anybody, for adults or children. And it was just... His way of writing, his language that was appropriate for children. But I think he didn't sit down to write for children in particular. For example, in the story Spring, 
Frog comes to Toad's house to tell him that spring is here. Blah, said a voice from inside the house. Toad, Toad, cried Frog. The sun is shining. The snow is melting. Wake up. I am not here, said the voice. Frog walks in the house. It's dark and the shutters are closed. Go away, said the voice from a corner of the room. Toad was lying in bed. He had pulled all the covers over his head. Frog tries his hardest to get Toad out of bed, to entice him with walks in the meadows and through the woods, with swims and evenings under the stars. But nothing seems to work on Toad. I will be too tired. I am going back to bed. Toad went back into the house. He got into the bed and pulled the covers over his head again. Toad is really, really down in the story, and it takes real persistence from Frog to convince Toad to rejoin the world. It's not a typical kid story. For illustrator Sergio Ruzier, that's what makes it perfect. It's very honest. It's, it's really it's not edulcorating reality. If the story is about Toad being depressed or anxious for something, they're not. he's not going to hide the fact that it could happen. It could happen that you feel terrible, that you feel really quite low. And there are moments when you do. And hopefully for Toad, he has a good friend. And, and that helps him a lot. Sergio says there's no lesson in the end. No special message, like in other kidlet. The stories just find a way to simplify and verbalize complex feelings to kids who certainly experience such emotions but may not know how to talk about them yet. It's very important. I think it's very good that there are books like that where they don't, the the, the greed of reality is, is not uh, hidden. I think the biggest thing is that it doesn't talk down to kids, right? This is Pete Oswald. He's also an illustrator. He says part of what makes Frog and Toad so good is oddly how human they are. We can be these characters and we can relate to these characters and go through these same emotions, be in that same store, be in that world. So I think it's having the ability to see yourself in a character and you know ultimately kind of be that character. Pete remembers reading Frog and Toad as a child. My grandmother, who is a English teacher, used to read it to my brother and I growing up. I kind of imagined my brother and I as Frog and Toad. He's six years older than me. He's like, six foot four and I, I didn't get the height in the family but weirdly we're kind of switched like I was frog and my brother was toad I'm a little bit more cheery than he is so I always kind of projected myself into these stories and projected him into these and so it was a really cool relationship kind of growing up and listening to these stories then for a time he stopped reading the books until he had his own kids Now, they're the ones projecting themselves onto Frog and Toad. They'll say, you're Frog, no, you're Toad. And um, I think it's really, really powerful, yeah. Of course, as an illustrator, he pays a lot of attention to Arnold's pictures. And I like to think that when you're reading a manuscript, you read the words and then the pictures are additive. They're not just doing the same thing 
that the words are doing, right? There's kind of a symbiotic relationship between the, the text and the illustrations, and the illustrations bring something that the text doesn't bring, and the text brings something that the illustrations don't bring. It's finding that balance. Oh, yeah. Well, how would you describe his illustrations? They're loose, expressive, and then sophisticated. His, I love his pen and ink style and then complemented with this kind of muted watercolor wash you know like he only has there's like three or four colors in that he uses it's so funny to actually kind of go back and analyze these books because i remember growing up you know obviously these these books have made a big impression on me and and thinking about these books i thought they were like full color your memory is just arnold has done such a great job of of leaving room for the reader. And then I think that's when you fill in all these blanks. Arnold managed to build that connection with his readers through a frog and a toad. Not exactly the cutest, cuddliest creatures in the animal kingdom. But he imbued them with so much personality and made the pictures so specifically reflect their quirks that children and adults grew to love them. Perhaps even more impressive is that the characters had such broad appeal. That was by design. Arnold had said that he liked to draw and write about animals rather than humans because it allowed him to reach the widest audience. With animals, he didn't have to think about appealing to rich kids versus poor kids, to boys or to girls, or to kids from different racial and cultural backgrounds. Animals could reach everyone, he thought. Pete also draws animals a lot. He is best known for the Angry Birds movie and for illustrating the Food Group series, which includes the Bad Seed, the Good Egg, and the Cool Bean, all written by Joy John. I just feel like we can, we can keep going, right? If you just think about the amount of you know, different food puns that you can come up with. He says, ultimately... You can really tell good stories with anything. I think at the end of the day, it's about infusing whatever you're drawing with human qualities and something that a person can relate to, whether it is whether you are physically drawing, you know, you're drawing a human or you're drawing the bad seed or the good egg or the cool bean, you know, adding legs to, to a seed. It's those emotions and it's the story that, that really make it powerful and connect with the reader. In the bad seed, for example... Readers follow a sunflower seed who's got bad manners and a bad attitude. He came by them honestly. He was separated from his family when the sunflower dropped its petals and ended up in a bag of sunflower seeds, almost eaten by a human. No wonder he's bad. Ultimately, though, the seed decides it wants to be happy and finds redemption. I think we all, you know, we're all, we always want to do do the right thing and, and try to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, we're human and we do get upset. We do do bad things, so to speak. But how do you convey such complicated emotions in a seed? Pete says it came down to how he drew the eyes. He says that he also focuses on white space, leaving enough of it so that readers have room to imagine what's unsaid and unpainted. In other words, room to make the books their own. There's kind of this conversation 
it's a collaboration that I, I like to think about with the reader and then it's the pictures and, and the story that I bring to it, right? And it's having that back and forth. And ultimately, I think that's when you really form those memories and, and create something super special. That's something Pete took away from Frog and Toad, too, where there's plenty of room in the illustrations to make the stories your own. So I grew up reading American comics, comic strips from the 20s, the 30s. That's writer and illustrator Sergio Ruzier, who we heard from earlier. He grew up in Milan, Italy. He didn't know about Frog and Toad as a child. My favorite were Crazy Cat and Popeye, Lil Abner, and then later Peanuts and, uh, and many other comics, which for some reason... There were magazines in the 70s, 80s in Italy that were publishing those old comics. They were translating them maybe for the first time in Italy. So I was exposed to a lot of that. But at the same time, I had love for Italian uh, medieval and early Renaissance art. So, you know, the paintings of Giotto, Simone Martini, the Lorenzetti's. Uh, so I would go to churches, to museums, and to look at those cycles, frescoes. He loved Hieronymus Bosch. So as soon as I was old enough, I went to, when I was 18, I went to Madrid to see all the, his paintings, the Bosch's paintings at the Prado. And I, I was, every time there was a, an exhibition with something that I knew I would like, I would do a, a trip. If it was not in Milan, I would take the train and go there. He discovered Arnold Lobel's books as an adult. They were not published. He, he was, Arnold Lobel was not known in Italy when I was a kid. Uh, so I really got to know his work when I moved to New York City. In his mid-20s, Sergio visited New York City for vacation. And he loved it so much that he moved there in 1995. And when I read it, I was like, oh my God, this is, it was such a revelation. It, it, I love this book. So I do read them quite a lot, actually. And I am also a proud owner of, of a pencil drawing. An original by Arnold. I bought it online. I found it online and I bought this nice little preparatory drawing. Sergio says that one of the things he likes about the Frog and Toad books is the subtle, somewhat dark humor in the stories. One of Sergio's favorites is a story called A Swim. Toad doesn't want Frog to look at him while he puts his bathing suit on. He knows that he looks ridiculous when he has his bathing suit on. And a frog, of course, is naked. He takes off his clothes. He's a frog. He just goes swimming in the creek naked, but Toad needs to put his, his bathing suit on. And it's like a, a silent comedy from the, you know, the 1920s, that one-piece striped bathing suit. And then when he's in the water, he needs to come out, he's done with swimming, but all the animals are waiting for him to come out because they want to see his bathing suit and he doesn't want to come out of the water. And, and when he comes out, everybody laughs because it's true that that bathing suit, that he looks really funny in his bathing suit and he says, of course I, I do. It's hilarious to imagine a toad in a bathing suit, especially the way that Arnold draws it. But... Who hasn't felt self-conscious at the beach? Sergio's own books have a similar offbeat but sincere tone to them. Take the book Roar Like a Dandelion. Sergio illustrated it, and the words are by Ruth Krauss. It's an alphabet book. Each sentence starts with the next letter in the alphabet. So the book is a series of sentences that could be seen as 
bits of poetry or maybe poetry itself, I don't know, but it's really free thoughts. And that was what was also beautiful for me to do, that I could just take it as a hint to do whatever I want. Actually, the way I illustrated it, the way I ideas for pictures came to my mind was from the first time I read it, I would just do little sketches that came to my mind freely without thinking too much, without overthinking. So that way, I really felt free the same way she was free with the way she was writing. In his drawings, smiling Hieronymus Bosch-like creatures fly towards a wall with a cage painted on it. A mousy animal X's out monsters in a Martian landscape. Elephants fall like raindrops, threatening to squash a cat with an umbrella. The drawings are incongruous, funny, and joyfully strange. Well, there is always, even when I do stories that are, uh, that have a sad undertone, there is always something humoristic. I think it's just the way I see things. I, I always see the, the, the weird side of things or the funny inconsistencies of things and I always like to put them in my stories and in my drawings. Much like the funny undertone in Arnold's stories, Sergio's books harness a similar, sometimes dark, comedy. But again, it's not that I sit down and say I'm going to do something weird and quirky. That's how they come out. But in Arnold's books, it wasn't just the tone and humor that moved him. It was the relationship between Frog and Toad. When you say what Frog and Toad is about... Everybody will tell you it's about friendship. It is about friendship, of course. They're great friends. and But it's not the usual friendship uh, that you see in children's books. It's something much more deep and, and interesting and disturbing sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sure, Do- uh, Toad is the, uh, you know, the guy who freaks out uh, for uh, no reason. And, and, and Frog is there to try to make him feel better and... And he's a, he has his own things to do, but they're always together. And even when they're not, they know that they, they love each other. I really like it. But I don't know, there is something very deep in, in the relationship between Frog and Toad that I really, I really like. Readers have wondered if what Frog and Toad have is more than friendship. Well, they're both male amphibians who seem to be in love with each other. This is Adrian again. Arnold's daughter. I think it's great. You know, I think Frog and Toad are gay. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's not a surprise that they've been taken on by the gay community. They're fusty old gentlemen who are devoted to each other, and they live a tiny life, a very intimate life together. I think that that's a great thing. And I think also Frog and Toad is a great book for gay parents. There's no shortage of memes on the internet about how Frog and Toad are hashtag relationship goals, how they're queer role models. Arnold himself came out shortly after Frog and Toad were first published. Yes, and maybe that isn't such a mysterious thing. I think uh, they may have been uh, a portal into his coming out. Who knows? You know, I really, he, he, he didn't talk about this stuff very much with me, so... I don't know, but it is the timing is a, is a little suspect. Arnold wrote and illustrated more than two dozen books. He worked with other writers as an illustrator on dozens more. He passed away in 1987 from complications due to HIV AIDS. Adrian, who's a set designer, 
says that he died the night of a huge opening for an opera that she had designed. Half an hour before the curtain went up, I got a message from my mother to call, and I knew what it was about. And he had died that afternoon. Uh, you know, I loved my papa very much, and I'm sorry he missed a lot of things. He missed the birth of all of his grandchildren. He would have loved his grandchildren. And um, he's been gone for 30 years now, which is hard to believe. Adrian says Arnold's grandkids got to know him through his books. Well, we read all of his books to them when they were growing up. Adrian produced a musical based on Frog and Toad, which she says also keeps his memory alive in a different way. And in 2014, Arnold was posthumously honored by the New York Illustrator Society with a Lifetime Achievement Award. They asked Adrian to accept the honor. So, of course... She wrote it as a speech through Frog and Toad. It was Frog trying to get Toad ready to go to the award ceremony and Toad for having forgotten all about it. And then Frog said, but you were supposed to write a speech. And Toad said, oh my God, no, I, you have to do it, Frog. And it goes on like that. And then they actually go to the Illustrator Society and everybody's, all Arnold Lobel's characters are in the audience and and Frog says, thank you very much, and everybody cheers. <laughs> I suspect that Toad insisted on taking an Uber home shortly after the ceremony so he could recuperate from the excitement. And Frog, who wanted to socialize a bit more, obliged and called his friend a ride. Special thanks to Adrian Lobel, Pete Oswald, Sergio Rutzier, and Susan Hirschman. Thanks also to the Wascombs. Rosemary, Elise, and Kent, who we heard from in the beginning. For more about any of the books in this episode, visit harpercollins.com. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod, or you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We feature them in our newsletter, which if you're not signed up for that, head on over to rememberreading.com, where you can sign up to get episodes, quotes, and trivia delivered to your inbox every month. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurov, and I'm Lindsay Jacobson. Until next time.